Well, go ahead and have a seat. Uh, good morning, Village. Welcome. My name's Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church, and it's great to see you here this morning. We're going to be continuing our series through the book of Joshua, staying right in it this morning. And so we'll be in Joshua chapter five. I want to set the scene a little bit, remind us about where we are at here in Joshua. Up until this point uh, in the book and the people of Israel have wandered through the wilderness for 40 years due to their unfaithfulness. And that generation now had died off. Moses dies. And now Joshua is the leader. And so now this new generation of people, and we've seen this the first four chapters of the book, they prove themselves to be faithful. They are obeying God. And since they trust and obey God, uh, they've been able to cross over the Jordan River. God performs a miracle. They've crossed over the Jordan. Now they're set and they're ready in the promised land, ready to conquer it. And before that conquest starts, though, uh, God is going to do some things to remind the people that he is faithful and that they are his people. And so last week we saw the monument that God had them create uh, so they would remember what he did for them in crossing the Jordan River. And now in chapter five, God is going to specifically set apart the people of Israel as his distinct chosen people. So let's get right into it. Uh, Verse one, we're going to see here first, though, there's one verse that the Canaanites are a little scared about what is coming for them. So Joshua five, verse one, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over their hearts melted and they were no longer, there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So the leaders of the Canaanites, they had got word that God had parted the waters of this huge river and this huge mass of people had crossed over into their land. And surely they had been getting more reports than this also. Uh, The Israelites had already had a few military victories. They probably heard word that these people carry the Ark of the Covenant in front of them, which represents the presence of their God who had just performed this great miracle for all to see. So the text says that the Canaanites' hearts melted because they did not want to face these people. Uh, who are being led by this powerful God. And of course, we know Israel was led by the one true God. What you need to understand is that we are catching Israel here, led by Joshua, at a time when they are being distinctly obedient to God. And we'll see here in a minute, the text makes a point of this. That had not always been the case. Um, Sadly, it would not continue to be the case for very long into the future. The generation before this uh, had not been obedient. They had not been faithful. That was a generation that had started grumbling uh, just as soon, basically, as God delivered them from Egypt. That was a generation that turned to idol worship while Moses was up on the mountain uh, being given God's law. And then ultimately that generation did not trust God to give them the promised land. And they suffered the consequence of that, uh, wandering 40 years uh, in the wilderness. What we're seeing here now, these last five weeks in Joshua, is that that unfaithful, that disobedient generation had passed away and Israel now is following God. And because of that, as they're about to start this conquest of the promised land and see that promise fulfilled uh, in their lifetime, God's going to further set apart Israel and he's going to quite literally mark them as his chosen people. So let's pick back up uh, Joshua five verses two through five. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who had come out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. 
though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after that, after they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. So yes, of course, uh, Steve leaves me with the week to talk to you about circumcision. Um, The reality is it's actually not that complicated. It's actually not that complicated of a thing. God says right in the text what he's doing and why. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and with Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. And one thing that we don't really know why is why the Israelites had not been putting this sign on their boys while they were wandering the desert. I'm sure a lot of the men at this point in the story were regretting that decision and were questioning their parents on that one. Uh, But we don't know why they stopped doing this other than it's just another example of that generation's unfaithfulness that they did not give the sign of God's people to their kids. The text says that all the males who came out of Egypt had this sign of being God's people. But the new generation that had been born over the last 40 years did not have it. And so one thing that that tells you, and don't miss this, is that it's not the sign that makes you faithful. The sign of the covenant with God is intended to be an outward expression of your faithfulness. That's the intent of it. But that old generation that did have the sign, they were unfaithful to God and they suffered the consequences for it. And now this new generation who was obeying God, who was following God into the promised land, they actually did not have the sign of the covenant. And so God says to them, you're obeying me, you're following me, you're acting like my people as you should. It's time for you to have that sign that you are my people. And so here's the big picture to understand. This was all about setting apart God's people as distinct from the world. Uh, Circumcision is not a normal thing to do. And that was the point. Uh, This was intended to be an outward sign of their faithfulness to God. And faithfulness to God continues to this very day to set us apart as distinct from the world. And so that's the first big point I want us to see this morning. Faithfulness to God will make you distinct from the world. God's people must be distinct from the world. Followers of Jesus, Christians must be distinct from the world. That's an easy thing to say, but do we actually believe that? Are we committed to that as a principle? And I think being committed to distinction as a principle is important. And that's one of the reasons why God in history has given physical signs of distinction to us. On the one hand, I think it is inevitable. If you're being faithful to God, if you're living life as a committed Christian, that is going to make you distinct from the world. Uh, Something that's just going to happen. If you're obedient, if you're obeying God's commands, if you're seeking God through prayer and his word, if you make decisions uh, with God's mission and his glory in mind, then you're going to be distinct from the world who's not doing all of those things. But if we're not committed in principle to being distinct from the world, I think we tend to try to find ways to hide our distinctions. Our distinctions become about a few church commitments a week, but honestly, that doesn't really stand out too much in the world. A lot of our distinctions become about what our opinions are on social issues, though we don't share those opinions where they might be an actual conflict with anyone and actually change any minds. Uh, Many of our distinctions become about what we don't do. And while avoiding sin, it matters a lot. If we're not committed to distinction in principle, we tend to avoid those distinctions that are about the things that we do participate in, the conversations that we do have, the different ways that we do organize our lives. And so we need to be committed in principle that being faithful to God and following him makes us distinct from the world. 
And here's what I mean by in principle. Uh, You have to be comfortable with standing out in the world. Not merely accept that it's a reality. You've got to embrace that. I think that this is especially true in our day when we're facing a more hostile culture. If you don't embrace that you have different values than this world and a different allegiance to Jesus as Lord, you're not going to stay faithful when hard things come. So don't merely accept being distinct. Learn to enjoy being distinct and learn to lean into your distinctions. Now, there's a fine line between embracing distinction as a reality of following Jesus and manufacturing it. And manufacturing distinction is not helpful because then you're doing things Jesus never really asked you to do just to stand out. And that's not actually healthy either. That's always been the rub of Christian subculture, hasn't it? It's like you're not doing that because of your distinction as a Christian. You're doing that because you're a weirdo and you're slapping a Christian label on it and you want to feel better about it. That's not what we're after. That can't be the kind of distinction that we're looking for. I'm not going to elaborate on that point. I know you know that's a real thing. But the goal here is that we've got to be distinct because of the things that God calls us to in our lives from the scripture. You've got to be okay being distinct in the way you live your life compared to the world around you because of the kinds of things following Jesus leads you to do and to say. Thinking back to our story in Joshua, it's not a coincidence that God has them recommit themselves to this distinct sign of circumcision at this time after they have shown themselves faithful by crossing over the Jordan River and trusting him. The faithfulness is the distinction that the sign represents. The distinction of God's people has always ultimately been about obedience and faithfulness to God. There are many texts we could go to in order to see this, but let's look at one from the Old Testament and then a parallel in the New Testament. So Leviticus 18, 1 through 4. We'll go there first. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. So God's people were to be different from the people around them. God says, don't do as the Egyptians do. And God says in the new land he's bringing them to, don't live like the Canaanites live. God is pretty direct about what he means by this. He says, follow my rules, not the rules of the people around you in the world. And that command implies that those things are going to be in conflict at times. There's a distinction that comes with being God's people and living by God's rules. And we see the same thing in the New Testament. Look at Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. It'll be on the screen too. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. See, the Apostle Paul here, he's talking about the new life that we have in Christ. And notice he makes a point to highlight the distinction right there at the beginning. Paul doesn't merely say to obey God. He doesn't merely say to follow Jesus. He will say both of those things more and more as he describes new life in Christ. But Paul starts with the distinction. He says, if you follow Jesus, you're not going to look like Gentiles. You're going to be distinct. And how could you not be? They don't have the understanding that you have. They're alienated from God. They're ignorant with hard hearts. And all that leads them to live lives marked by sin. And so whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, God tells his people that they are to be distinct from the people around them. God gives his people signs of their distinction. And one of those signs for Israel was circumcision. 
So now that the Israelites have recommitted themselves to following and obeying God, and they've proven that they're serious about it, God tells Joshua they need to have this sign that marks them as his distinct people. Well, in the New Testament, God gives his church two signs that are a demonstration of our distinction from the world, and that's baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. These two ordinances of the church are a demonstration of our distinction, and these practices themselves actually make us distinct in the world. Uh, Baptism and communion are not normal practices. They're not supposed to be, and that is the point. Uh, We just celebrated baptisms last week. It's not a normal thing to get submerged in a pool of water in front of hundreds of people. Uh, It's not something people just do all the time in their day-to-day life. Uh, Almost every week we take communion here. It's not normal to say that a piece of bread represents the son of God's body that was broken for us and that the juice represents Christ's blood shed for us. And then having said that, to eat that bread and drink that juice, that's not a normal thing. All right, there's a reason why people were freaked out by the early church when they first started doing this practice. The ordinances of the church are intended to set us apart as distinct from the world. And we're going to look at both of these a little bit this morning. The New Testament does actually draw a connection between baptism and circumcision in one passage, and that's Colossians 2, 8 through 14. So we're going to look at that. Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so note here that the setup for what Paul is about to say is distinction from the world. He's saying, don't be taken captive by the philosophy of the world. So continuing in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's a lot there, Uh, but for our purposes this morning, I just want us to notice that what baptism does is give the believer in Jesus an outward sign and an outward demonstration of the spiritual reality of new life in Christ through faith. From the text in Colossians, uh, we see that baptism is a sign of fellowship with Christ. It's a sign of union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. It's a sign of forgiveness of the washing away of sins. And it's a sign of newness of life, of walking with Christ. And where circumcision was a physical sign of being a part of the nation of Israel, baptism is a physical demonstration and sign of being a born again part of God's church. And so the meaning of baptism is found in its connection to the new birth of the believer in Jesus. And that connection between baptism and new birth in Christ is why we're Baptists. Okay, that's why we don't believe there's evidence in Scripture for baptizing babies or very young children before they can articulate and profess that new life in Christ. And there is a parallel, we just saw it in Colossians, between baptism and circumcision, but it's not a one-to-one parallel. Baptism is a sign, just like circumcision was a sign, but it's not the Christian replacement for circumcision. So what's important to focus on is what these practices were signs of. In Israel, circumcision was a sign of the reality that you were born into the people of Israel. That's why it happened at days, eight days after birth, or it was supposed to. 
For New Testament believers, baptism is a sign of new birth, of new life, and identification with Christ's death and resurrection. And so that's why baptism happens upon profession of faith, upon that new life and that new birth. This distinction in uncommon practice is intended to be a sign that the follower of Jesus will be faithful to God and thus distinct and set apart from the world. Baptism is supposed to be distinct. It's supposed to be a little bit weird. That's part of the point. It sets us apart as different. Okay, let's continue now in Joshua 5, verses 6 through 7. Keep getting through this passage. It says in verse 6, For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So this is a very interesting passage here. Uh, Part of it is that God is further elaborating on why there is a need for the Israelites to recommit themselves to him. But notice also that this text goes out of the way to describe the consequences of unfaithfulness for the previous generation. Uh, This generation had the outward sign of being God's people, and they were indeed God's people. But despite that outward sign, verse 6 says they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And because of that, they did not get to experience entering the promised land. They had to wander for 40 years in the desert. And so God is making the point here. And my second point this morning is disobedience has real consequences. Wrapped within this story about faithfulness and being distinct because of faith in God, right there in the middle is a very serious warning about where disobedience can lead. You can't look at this story and say that disobedience doesn't have consequences. Uh, We're so good at downplaying the consequences of sin in our lives. And part of that is because we often just don't have a big enough view of all that God could do in and through our lives. A few weeks ago, Pastor Steve talked about how we often don't view sin as a waste of our life. Well, another thing that we do is we don't view the consequences of sin in contrast to the blessings of God that we could have experienced instead if we were to have obeyed. And this is not some treating God like he's a genie thing where if we do this, God will give us that. All right. That's not what I'm talking about. God has real promises promises to us in scripture about what faithfulness will bring to us in our lives. And to sum those up, God promises us that following him and obeying him is a better life than not doing that. And we can't possibly know all that that means, but it is a genuine promise. And what we tend to do is focus on God's ultimate promises in Christ. And those promises are primary. There's no doubt about that. We should have those in mind. There's no bigger promise than the promise of eternal life. And that is a future promise that is secured at the moment of genuine faith in Christ. So those future promises are huge. But we often look only to those future promises as we ignore that God also promises that faithfulness in this life is always worth it. But that also means the corollary. Disobedience is never worth it. Disobedience has consequences. And think about it this way. God promised the people of Israel the promised land. And he did make good on that promise, ultimately. But even in that passage, he says he made good on that promise through their children because of their disobedience. The example pointed out to us in this text is that the disobedience of some of God's people meant they didn't get to experience that promised land in this life. God will ultimately fulfill all his promises, but our obedience matters in this life. God made a promise 
to give the land. And he fulfilled that promise in the coming generations. But the disobedience of the individual people still mattered. It still had real consequences. They didn't get to live in that land and experience the joy of that. The trustworthiness of God fulfilling his promises is absolutely sure. Uh, That is a theme again and again in scripture. But don't miss that our experience of some of God's promises can very much change depending on our obedience. Uh, Verse six here in Joshua five is a scathing indictment of disobedience. But you might say, all right, that was the Old Testament. We're New Testament believers. God doesn't give consequences for disobedience like that anymore. But God doesn't change. All right. The principles at play here are still at play. And in fact, did you know the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he actually points back to this exact story in Israel's history as an example. And he uses that word. This is an example of the consequences of disobedience. So let's look at that. First Corinthians 10. We're going to start in verse one. The Apostle Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then look down. Verse 11 and 12, he reiterates this as an example. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. So notice particularly why Paul says he's giving the example of the Israelites who were unfaithful and who wandered in the wilderness. He says it so that we will not desire evil. He, he says it so that we will take heed lest we fall. Disobedience has consequences and we should actively want to avoid those consequences. That's Paul's whole point in this passage. Uh, sin cannot separate God from his people. He will be with them. This is even more so now in the new covenant. But Paul is teaching a very real and unending principle here. That's why he says twice, this is for your example. While sin can't separate us from God, it's serious. It can keep us from experiencing God's work in our life. And that's a big deal. Can God still work in and through our lives when we sin? Yes, he does and he will. And there's actually scripture about that too. But we should desire and we should strive to be examples of faithfulness, not examples of how God worked in spite of our disobedience. Uh, Do not put the goodness of God's sovereignty to the test. Now, this is why the Apostle Paul says elsewhere to the general idea of whether or not we should have a worry about our sin, knowing that God saves sinners. Paul says, may that never be. May we never have the idea that sin doesn't matter because we know God's got us in the end. God does have us in the end if we repent and have our faith in him. But disobedience matters. We need to take it seriously. And so God makes a very intentional point to point that out here and say, look, this whole generation, only their kids got to see the promise because they were disobedient. Uh, So we need to heed that warning and take disobedience seriously. All right, moving on in our story. Let's look quickly at Joshua 5, uh, 8 through 9. It says, when, circum- when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. You see here that faithfulness and obedience of this new generation, it brings restoration. 
Uh, this next generation obeyed and they're going to see the promised land now. And God is reminding them with circumcision that they are his people and that this means they should follow, they should obey, they should trust him. But it says God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. They're not marked by their disobedience any longer. Generationally, they're not marked by it any longer. You don't have to be marked by your past. You don't have to be marked by generational sin either. We can choose to follow and obey as God's people, and God does restore people. All right, moving on to the last section we'll cover this morning. Joshua 5, verses 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So after renewing their covenant with God, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. And this is a celebration of remembrance and thanks for all that God has done in their lives. And this is another point of distinction. God's people remember and celebrate the ways that God has moved in their lives. Steve preached a whole sermon on this topic last week, and this theme is actually just repeating itself here. But note the progression. The people are faithful. They obey God. They follow him because of that faithfulness. They're now ready to take the promised land and God's going to give it to them. And because of that faithfulness, God reminds them of his promises and he sets them apart as his distinct people. And in response to all of that, they celebrate, they give thanks. And so the last point I want us to see this morning from this passage in Joshua is that faithfulness is marked by thankfulness. Faithful and obedient people remember what God has done for them. And corollary to that, people who remember and celebrate what God has done for them tend to be faithful and obedient. And what that should tell us is that cultivating thankfulness is a spiritual discipline. It's something we actually need to work on cultivating in our life. And we see that in this passage in a few different ways. First is the Passover celebration, where they remembered how God had protected them and rescued them from Egypt. But then also this is tied to the ending of God's provision of manna which was a, a miracle that God had provided food for them all along the way in the wilderness. But now that's over because of the goodness of the new land that they're in. So part of thankfulness is recognizing that God is always working in our life, both through the miraculous and through the mundane, through everyday life. Uh, these people had just seen some things, right? To put it lightly, all right. They had seen military victories they weren't supposed to have. Uh, they had miracle food provided for them for 40 years to keep them alive. And now they just seen what was really the biggest miracle of all, the parting of the waters of this massive river. So this huge number of people could cross over into the land. So they're thankful, they're celebrating, but don't miss that God says he's going to keep working in their lives, but it's just going to be through the ordinary provision of where they live. They're in the promised land. They don't need the manna anymore. They're just going to have the regular food that the land provides. But that is not God stopping his provision for them. All right. God is still providing for them, but now it's just providing through ordinary life. We need to learn to be thankful for the regular things of life. Uh, so often we're looking for those big, out of the ordinary things to be thankful for. And we should absolutely recognize those when they happen. But real thankfulness is recognizing how God provides in the ordinary. Even if there are a lot of good things that we desire that we don't have, and that's a reality. 
for life in a fallen world. There is still so much to be thankful for. Uh, God doesn't need to always be giving us miracles like manna or like parting rivers because we live in an age with the full revelation of Jesus and all that we need to fully live a life pleasing to God. Our ordinary life includes Jesus. Is that enough for us to be thankful for? And even beyond that reality of just being a New Testament believer, which is quite a lot, uh, we've got the further blessing of living in an age where all of Scripture and all the knowledge of human history is available to us anytime in our pockets. All right, we get frustrated that God have, hasn't given us this or that in our lives, but we don't even stop to think about the reality that merely because of when and where we were born, we have huge advantages in knowing Jesus compared to most people who have ever lived in history. We of all people need to learn to be marked and we need to be distinct because of our thankfulness, because even our mundane would be riches compared to most people in history. As we consider this point about thankfulness this morning, I want us to look at some New Testament passages where faithfulness is marked by thankfulness. And as we do that, we're going to bring our topic back around to those markers of distinction God made for the New Testament church, the ordinances of baptism and communion. So let's look at one passage that has both of those things. Acts 2, verses 41 through 42. And it says this. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So you kind of have it all right there in that passage. Those who responded to God in faith were marked uh, with the distinct sign of baptism. When we have baptisms here, as we did last week, uh, notice that we will often say that we're celebrating baptism. And that's because that's something to be celebrated. It's something to be thankful for precisely because of the new life in Christ that that represents. And then in that passage, they devoted themselves to teaching, to growing in their knowledge and obedience. They devoted themselves to fellowship, the life of the church. When the text then says breaking of bread, many think that at least in part that refers to the communion meal when the church gathers for worship. So taking communion is about remembering and being thankful for God's provision in Christ. This distinction of celebrating what God has done and being thankful for it is itself a mark of faithfulness. Uh, The posture of thankfulness of the communion meal, it also teaches us about being thankful with the rest of our lives. And so I want to look a little bit more at that in our final text this morning, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. We're going to look at communion just a bit more. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we take communion nearly every week here at Village Church. And one of the reasons we do that is that we would be a people who are marked by our thankfulness of what God has done for us. And much like the Passover meal was a time for Israel to remember what God had done in their lives to protect them, to bring them out of Egypt. Communion is a time where the church remembers all that God has done for us in and through the work of Jesus. 
And this kind of thankfulness is a proclamation of God's power to save sinners and his goodness to save sinners. It says there at the end of the passage that when we take communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And often when we take communion here at Village, we'll often say as kind of the final encouragement, when you're ready, proclaim your faith by taking communion. Well, why is that act a proclamation of faith? Part of what makes taking communion a proclamation of faith is that it is distinct. It's distinct in the world. Like I said earlier, it's not normal occurrence for a group of people to eat a piece of bread and drink some juice in remembrance of one singular thing that we're all connected to. And the oddity of that is a proclamation that there's something different and unique about Jesus Christ. And participating in communion makes us distinct in the world. And of course, the act itself is an act of faith. When you take communion, you're saying that you're grateful for what God has done for you. You're professing your belief in what God has done for you in and through the work of Jesus. And so that act combined with true faith and belief, it's a proclamation to the world that we are God's distinct people and that he is our God. So a couple of application points this morning. Embrace the distinctions of being a Christian. Uh, following Jesus should make your life distinct from the world around you. Don't seek to minimize distinctions where they are genuine. Seek to embrace them. Take the consequences of disobedience seriously. Uh, we want to be examples of faithfulness, not examples of how God works in our lives in spite of our disobedience. All right, remember that. We need to believe God that he has more for us if we obey. That is a real and true promise. The life that God has for us if we are obedient and faithful is better than whatever life we could have otherwise. Strive to be distinctly marked by thankfulness. Uh, cultivating thankfulness is a spiritual discipline. Treat it like a discipline. Treat it like we need to put work into being thankful. Be proactive about being thankful. It will change uh, how you view the world and it will cause you to be more faithful and to obey more. Celebrate the distinctions of baptisms and communion. So these church ordinances are not normal, and that's the point. And God is setting us apart as a distinct people uh, for his purposes when we celebrate that distinction. 